When I first met Lindley, she was sort of a mystery, and I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to know how she thought. I wanted to know what she felt. I wanted to know what she thought about me. I, I mean, I, I, there were things that I wanted to know. And um, I mean, I wanted to know what she was thinking about the time that we were together. There was a lot about her that was a mystery that I wanted to know. I, I wanted to know whether or not she was as interested in a first kiss as I was. I mean, I, there was a mystery to what was going on, and I wanted to know. And the only way that I would come to know um, about her is if she allowed me to know it. She just had to make the decision that she... And it took some conjoling. I, I'm not going to lie about that. But, but she had to come to the place where she was agreeable to let me in and to discover something about her. And I'm really thankful she chose to let me in on the mystery a little bit. You know, God, God has been unfolding his plans and revealing who he is um, to us since time began. And the truth is that not a single one of us could know anything about God if God did not decide to reveal himself to us. It, it wouldn't matter how hard we tried to know him, if he didn't want us to know him, we could not know him. But the fact is, God wants us to know. And because God wants us to know, we can know. And that, that is such good news. Now, the Holy Spirit is a little bit mysterious. And I'm really thankful that God has determined that He wants us to know about His Spirit. And so He has revealed to us Things about His Spirit so that we can know about His Spirit. So the way that we know it is because He wants us to know it. And if He wants us to know it and we want to know it, we can know it. And I think that's so important to recognize that, that God wants us to get this. Now God has always existed, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's always been three persons, one God. The Father relates as the Father. The Son relates as the Son. The Spirit relates as the Spirit. We know how each of the persons in the Godhead, in the triune God, relates to each other because Scripture tells us. We know that God is three persons and that each person of God is fully God in all of God's attributes because the Scripture tells us. We know that God is three persons, but He is just one God. Because the Scripture tells us that. What we don't know is, how is God three persons and just one God? We, we don't know how that is. See, we're limited about what we know regarding God by God. So, even though we can't know everything, we don't have unlimited knowledge of God, and that understanding God at times feels like it eludes us or is somewhat mysterious, 
Understanding God as he intends to be understood is within our grasp. And so if God intends us to know something about himself, he makes that known. And if he makes it known, we can know it. And so the goal tonight is to discover together a little bit about what God wants us to know regarding the Spirit. And in doing that, to grow in a little bit of contentment with knowing what He wants us to know, being content with that. And uh, so I want to dig into that a little bit. Now, to start us off, I just want to review the passage that they read earlier, John chapter 16. So you can look at John chapter 16 with me, uh, and we'll we'll look at the section that we we read earlier, verses 5 through 15. But I'm just going to focus in, uh, starting in verse, verse 8. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So right here, Jesus is telling us the distinct role that the Spirit of God will play in the world. So after Jesus ascends to be with the Father, the Father and the Son send the Spirit to do these specific things. So this is the distinct role of what the Spirit does. And so let's just get a quick overview. He comes to convict the world. Concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because the world does not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. So we're not able to see perfect righteousness in the form of Jesus Christ being on the earth. So the Spirit comes so that he might convict regarding righteousness. And then verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Spirit of God is in the world bringing about conviction, all right? Then if you keep going, you can see that in the life of a believer, the Spirit is going to to carry out the role of convicting in regard to sin, in regard to righteousness, in regard to judgment, and the role of guiding into truth. So see, the Spirit of God wants to reveal to you and me who God is. There is no greater truth than who God is. And so the Spirit of God's role in our lives as followers of Christ is to help us know who God is. And here we are wanting to know something about the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that we've got to depend upon to know about the Spirit. Because that's the role of the Spirit. And so tonight, I just want you to take a moment and consider that you will not know anything about God unless you depend upon the Spirit. And you can depend upon the Spirit to reveal to you about God because God has chosen to reveal Himself and His his method of revealing Himself is to illuminate you to who He is and what He has said in the Scripture by way of the Spirit. So we're dependent tonight on the Spirit to tell us about the Spirit. And so just, just ask the Lord. Just, Lord, would you... Fill me with your spirit. And will you just help me to understand the truth about you? That's that's the means through which God's going to speak to us tonight. By way of the word through the spirit. So let's listen to him. 
And the first evidence that God wants us to know about the Spirit is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God is moving across the waters. And it's the first mention of the Spirit. That tells us God wants us to know about the Spirit because right at the beginning of the Bible, He mentions the Spirit. So He wants us to know about the Spirit. If we look at the Old Testament, just see how the Old Testament kind of unfolds the work of the Spirit. We can see that the Spirit of God comes upon certain people in the Old Testament to accomplish certain activities for the glory or the unfolding of God's plans. Now, the the Spirit comes upon just a certain number of people and kind of people. The Spirit of God comes upon prophets. The Spirit of God comes upon leaders among God's people. The Spirit of God comes upon some of the judges. The Spirit of God comes upon some of the craftsmen that are supposed to be working in the tabernacle and the temple. That's really the extent of the Spirit coming upon people in the Old Testament. There is no across-the-board indwelling of the Spirit in the lives of people in the Old Testament. The Spirit comes upon you for a short period of time to accomplish a certain task, and then the Spirit is no longer upon you. It's not that the Spirit of God is not present. It's not that the Spirit of God is not working. It's that the Spirit of God comes upon individuals only a certain number of individuals for a certain amount of time for a certain reason. No constant indwelling. But what's happening in the Old Testament is pointing towards a day when the Spirit of God will be poured out on all people. And we see the first evidence of that in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. What happens there is the elders, along with Moses, are filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon them. They begin to prophesy. And Joshua is not real happy about the fact that some of this is going on. And he begins to be kind of jealous for Moses' role, thinking that Moses would be threatened in his leadership because some other people are giving evidence that the Lord's Spirit is upon them. And Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Why are you jealous for me? It would really be my preference that every single person in Israel is like a prophet, has the Spirit of God come upon them. And, and Moses is really prophetically pointing towards something in the future where the, the, the Spirit of the Lord is poured out on all people who are God's people. And so Moses gives the first prophetic statement about what's coming in the future. And then if you look at the book of Joel, chapter 2, you'll see in Joel, chapter 2, That, uh, that, that God's words there to Joel speak of an outpouring of the Spirit on all people. You can see it again in Isaiah. You can see it again in Ezekiel. Throughout the prophets, they pick up on what, what Moses said in Numbers, and they give these prophecies because the Spirit of God is instructing them what to say, that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all people. So the Old Testament's painting this picture that we're moving towards a time when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all people. And then you get the time of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where John the Baptist starts talking about prophesying what Jesus is going to do. And he says Jesus is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he's communicating that, that an outpouring of the Spirit is coming because of Christ. 
And then on the other side of that, there is a judgment that's coming because of Christ. And it really, it really reflects back to Joel talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, there'll be an outpouring of the Spirit. And the day of the Lord, there'll be an outpouring of judgment. And you see that reflected in John's prophecy about what Jesus will do. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He, he brings disciples in. Then he sends them out. Then he ascends to heaven. And the next significant moment of the Spirit's work is at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter and the disciples are in Jerusalem at the temple because they're having this massive feast that draws people from all regions around Jerusalem. And they're having a feast called the Feast of Harvest. It's a harvest festival. And they're celebrating the grain harvest. So everybody's there to celebrate this festival that God has directed. And during the festival... The Spirit of God falls upon the disciples. It's where the flames of fire over their heads and they begin to speak in tongues. And people are freaking out that are from Jerusalem because they're hearing all these languages they don't recognize. And what happens is you have little groups of people all around the, the, the feast of the harvest who are beginning to gather up in their language groups around the disciples who are speaking the language of their home. The disciples don't know those languages. The Spirit of God has enabled them to speak foreign languages that represent the language of their home. And so you have all these, you know, probably 11 groups around that are hearing the apostles speak the gospel in their language. And everybody from Jerusalem is looking around saying, there's a lot of drunk people here. And Peter stands up and says, look, it's early in the morning. They're not drinking. They don't have a drinking problem. This, what's really happening here is Joel chapter 2. And he pulls out the prophecy of Joel and says, what's happening right now is what the prophet Joel said would happen. What's happening right now is what Isaiah said, what Ezekiel said, what Moses said. This is what God has been pointing towards. This is the moment where we're experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the group hears the gospel, and from all these different language groups, there are 3,000 people who come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in that moment. So an amazing harvest occurs at the Feast of the Harvest because the Spirit of God falls and they speak a language they would otherwise not know in order to powerfully proclaim the gospel so that people repent. Now, the most amazing thing at Pentecost is not that the apostles spoke in different languages. It's not that there was this miraculous occurrence that the Spirit came in the form of a flame and they spoke in these languages. That's not the most amazing thing that happens. That's not even really the point of Acts chapter 2. The most amazing thing that happens at Pentecost is captured when Peter says, essentially says, if you trust in Jesus Christ and you ask Him to forgive you of your sins and you get baptized as a follower of Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. The most significant thing that happens at Pentecost is that people who decide to trust in Christ personally receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God. 
so that every single person there that decides to follow Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. That has never happened before. That is the most significant thing about Pentecost is that every single person who trusts in Christ receives the indwelling of the Spirit, is baptized in the Spirit of Christ. And that sets forth a New Testament pattern. See, Pentecost is that transitional moment where the Spirit of God's activity in the Old Testament makes a break from what we saw in the Old Testament and begins a new way in the New Testament. And Pentecost is that moment. You see, before Pentecost, nobody had the Spirit of God except for a short period of time in a special role for a particular reason. At Pentecost, now everyone who trusts in Christ receives the indwelling of the Spirit permanently. Remarkable change that God has brought so that we might know Him personally. It's amazing. God did that. So that every single one of us who puts our trust in Christ might have the Spirit of Christ indwelling our lives. And what that means is that the, that the pattern of the New Testament is now when you make a decision to follow Christ, when you make a decision to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, that upon your conversion, when you put faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can say it a number of ways. You receive the Spirit of God when you trust in Jesus Christ. That's the pattern of the New Testament. Jesus pointed towards it with his disciples when he was teaching them in the Gospels. In John chapter 14, he says to the disciples, the Holy Spirit's with you, the Spirit of truth is with you. Then he says, the Spirit of truth will be in you. John 14, 17 will be in you. He's pointing towards that. And Paul picks up on it after Pentecost and begins to teach the church how they should understand how they get into the body of Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we are all baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. The, the way that we know we're a part of the body of Christ is that conversion, the spirit of God comes and dwells in us. So that everyone who decides to follow Christ, at that moment of decision, that moment when, when we trust in Christ, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. Conversion. Now, the, the Scripture also commands us to be filled with the Spirit. There's an important distinction that the Scripture makes. We receive the Spirit upon faith in Christ. We get this gift of the indwelling permanent presence of the Spirit of God. Something that's never happened before now is happening in the New Testament in the church. And when we get the Spirit of God, then we are commissioned or commanded to be filled with the Spirit of God. And what that means is that we are to surrender to the control of the Spirit. We are to strive for the, for the Spirit to be in control of us so that we do what God wants, we do what God has called us to do, we desire what God desires. We want to strive for the Spirit to be in control of who we are, what we do, and why we do it. And if we will walk in the Spirit, being under the control of the Spirit, then we will experience various times in our lives God doing what He did throughout the Old Testament. 
and what he did at Pentecost. He will empower us to accomplish specific things for the strengthening of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. And so as we strive to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, the Spirit will empower us to accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish as a part of His plan for glorifying Christ on the earth. And so we get the Spirit at conversion, then we strive to be under the control of the Spirit so the Lord can empower us through the Spirit to accomplish the work of God on the earth. And as we do that in life, the Spirit of the Lord is carrying out some things in our lives. There are three ways that the Spirit of the Lord wants to secure this idea of our position in Christ as the church. So here's number one. Number one, the Spirit of the Lord is a seal in our life. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The, 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 The Spirit of the Lord is a seal which communicates authority. The Lord's authority has been stamped onto our lives and He is the one who owns us. He is the one who puts His seal of protection on us. His seal covers our life by the way of the Spirit. And so we know our position before God because of the seal of the Spirit. We know our position in Christ as the church because the Spirit of God acts as a pledge. A pledge. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5 talks about a pledge, that the Spirit of the Lord is a pledge in our life. What that means is that God has put a down payment in our lives that represents that He is going to make payment in full and fully purchase what He has bought. So he's installed a down payment so that we might know the full payment is coming. And what he's done essentially is by giving us the pledge of his spirit, he's enabled us to taste what is yet to come. Because the spirit of Christ indwelling us here on this earth in this body is just a taste of what we're going to experience when we have a brand new body and the full presence of God. And so he has given us a pledge. I've paid for you. And this is my down payment. I have bought you, I own you, and I'm going to come and I'm going to fully redeem you. And what I've put in you is just a taste of what I'm going to bring to you when when I purchase you. All right, so a seal and a pledge and a witness. My throat is really dry. Okay. A witness. There's two passages here. Romans chapter 8 talks about the witness that we belong to the Lord and that the Lord, God, is our Father. And Romans chapter 8 conveys that we are children of the Lord. He is our Father. So there's this witness by the Spirit that we belong to the Lord. And so we experience assurance that we are the Lord's through the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is speaking assurance into our lives every day that God is our Father. The Spirit provides for us the witness of the covenant that we are under in Christ. See, there was the old covenant that we saw carried out before Christ, 
And then Christ came, and we see this break at Pentecost with the Spirit's activity, and now the Spirit is constantly indwelling us. And Hebrews chapter 10, around verse 15 to 17, tells us that the Spirit says to us that the law is now written on our hearts in the new covenant. Now think about that. That's not really good news. Because when the law was written on stone tablets, what did that show us? That we were sinful and that we needed a Savior. Well, it's easy to walk away from the stone tablets and kind of put those at a distance. But now the Spirit indwells us and has written the law on our hearts. We cannot escape our sinfulness now. It is ever apparent how broken we are because the Spirit indwells us and writes on our hearts the law of God. But then the next part of that passage says, and he remembers our sin no more. That's the covenant. And the Spirit of God is there to remind you, I've written the law on your heart. You cannot make it on your own. But I will not remember your sins anymore. And I'm here in you. So you'll never forget that no matter how sinful you feel, I will not remember them because I have paid the price. The Spirit of God communicates your position in Christ in the church. Thanks, Caden. Okay, so the seal, the pledge, and the witness so that we might know our position in Christ, all right? The Spirit also helps us to be able to live the life in Christ as the church. So the Spirit communicates to us our position, and the Spirit enables us to live in Christ as the church. And there are four things I want to point out to you that the Spirit communicates um, that that the word communicates the spirit does. And I've got a handout in the copy room on the copier that, that you guys can pick up um, after we're done. And we'll have it outside for you. We'll get somebody. Glenna, can you do that and get it outside, bring it outside after we're done? And so, all, so what I'm fixing to do is got tons of references. Okay, and what I did with the first three, I've got references in addition to what I mentioned. And so that I don't have to tell you all these references, I printed them out so you can get them. But here are the four things. The Spirit of God empowers us. Okay, so when the Spirit indwells us, the Spirit empowers us. We are empowered to live a spiritual life. Previous to the Spirit's indwelling, we were spiritually dead, unable to please God in any way. And now because the Spirit indwells us, the Spirit empowers us to live spiritual life. So we are powered for life. We are empowered to experience a giftedness from the Lord to actually minister His grace to others so that others would see Christ and come to know Christ and we could strengthen the church and make ready the bride of Christ for the return of Jesus. So the Spirit of God empowers us to give our lives away for the sake of Christ and the church. And so the Spirit of God is working in us in that way. So the Spirit of God empowers us. 
All right? Then the second thing that the Spirit of God does is the Spirit of God purifies us. See, the Spirit of God, we said in John chapter 16, is convicting us. Well, in the life of a believer, he's convicting us all the time of sin because it breaks fellowship with God. He's convicting us all the time of righteousness because Jesus Christ is not here with us so we can see what he's like. So the Spirit of God is saying, that's not like what Jesus is like. You need to change. Constantly convicting us in regard to righteousness. He's constantly convicting us in regard to the judgment of the enemy so that we might know that God has already determined the victory. We walk in that victory through faith, and, he, and the Spirit of God is convincing us day in and day out, I have already defeated your enemy. Don't live as if he's bigger than me or you with me in you. See, the Spirit of God is constantly purifying us and revealing to us our sin and sanctifying us, bringing us through the sanctification process so that our life through the Spirit is a life of moving forward towards the holiness of God. Our life in Christ, when the Spirit comes in, is not instantaneous holiness. Now, what happens is, and we're going to get to this in Hebrews, and it is fantastic. We're going to love every second of this sermon. When I get there to Hebrews, what we're going to discover is that God purifies us by way of Jesus Christ, installs in us the Spirit of God so we might know we've been purified, but then He wants us to experience the benefits of having been purified. And so He then purifies our lives in how we live. Because positionally we've been purified in Christ, but we have not yet been sanctified in our lifestyle. We've got all these habits of brokenness and sin that comes with this sinful broken body. And the Lord says, I've done something positionally and now I'm going to do it functionally. And so the Spirit of God is about working out the holiness of God that He's installed in us through Christ. And so the Spirit of God purifies us. All right? In addition to purifying and in addition to empowering, the Spirit of God illuminates our hearts in regard to the truth. See, see what John chapter 16 says, that God is going to illuminate, illumine us to the truth so that we know what He has said and what He means by what He says. So when we open God's Word, begin to look at that, the reason we grasp things rightly about God is because the Spirit of God illumines our hearts. So He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to know about Him, His love, His person. He illumines us to who He wants us to be in guidance and direction in life. Okay, and the last thing is He unifies us. He unifies us. He brings us together on the same page as a body of believers. The reason why we want to work together and the reason we have experiences where the Lord's doing something here, the Lord's doing something there, all of a sudden we discover what He's doing together and we feel closer as 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 a group of people is because the Lord wants us to function as a community of believers, to be the church who serves one another, who honors one another, who helps one another know Christ. He wants to unify us. So that's what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives in salvation positionally and in salvation functionally. Right now, I think it's important, and I just got a a couple more minutes here. I just want to just quickly tell you um, that it's important to know what the Spirit does not do. In the same way God wants us to know what the Spirit does, I think we can know a little bit about what the Spirit does not do by virtue of what God has not said. In other words, the Spirit of God is not going to do something that God has not said that the Spirit of God will do. So if God hasn't said it, if He hasn't given the pattern for it, 
The Spirit of God doesn't do that. The only way we know anything about the Spirit of God is because God wants us to know it, and God has made it clear, and where He's made it clear is right here in His Word. And so we've got to understand who the Spirit is in the only way we can, and that's right here. Okay, so let me give you an example. Let's say that this morning I'm driving down the road, and first first of all, think about it this way. Does God direct us like we play the game of Clue? You ever played Clue? You get like three clues in a little envelope and you look at those clues and then you got to try to figure out who did what. And It's mainly guesswork trying to figure out and maybe if you're lucky you'll get it right. That's now how God guides us. So let's say I was driving down the road today and on the way to work I see this tree and, uh, and for some reason that tree just sticks out to me. And so I was just thinking about a tree. And all of a sudden then I'm thinking about, well, maybe God wants me to think about the tree. And so I start to think that maybe God's trying to say something to me through the fact that a tree is stuck in my mind. Well, then later that day, I have a conversation with a friend, and he's really had this big argument with his boss. He starts talking about how mad he is the boss. He's feeling all this rage towards his boss. And so I start thinking about that conversation, and this word rage just keeps going over in my mind again. So I'm thinking, man, why is it that I have a tree and I have rage in my mind? It's weird. Maybe God's trying to say something. And then later on, I start thinking about my son's birthday coming up, and I'm like, you know, maybe he'd like a cake, or maybe he'd like cookies. Well, if we were going to do a cookie cake, we'd get cookie dough, and... Next thing I know, cookie dough is just rolling over in my brain. And so now I've got a tree, I've got rage, and I've got cookie dough in my mind. And I'm sitting there, what is going on? Maybe God's trying to say something to me. It it dawns on me. He is speaking to me. He, He wants me this weekend to get in a tree stand with my bow that has rage broadheads on it. And he wants me to shoot a dough for the men's wild beast feast. I know what I need to do. God has shown me. Now listen, could God do that? Of course he could. That, we're not debating whether or not God could do something. We are talking about what God would do. And the scripture gives no evidence whatsoever that God would ever guide us like that. That's not the Lord. What we know about the Spirit, God has told us. And we can know it because he's told us. If somebody comes up to me and says to me, hey, I've got a word from the Lord for you. God's given me a prophecy for you. What, what do you do with that? Is, it, is that a biblical possibility? Absolutely. The scripture gives obvious evidence that God can give insight, knowledge, and even prophetic words to people for other people. You see it throughout scripture. So what do you do with that? Well, first of all, I want you to recognize that the New Testament pattern gives greater weight to the authority of the Spirit in your life for your walk before Him than He gives to any other individual over your life. Some random person comes up and tell you that the Lord told them to do something. Do not do that just because they said the Lord did it. That's not the way of the New Testament pattern. You have the Spirit, and you don't need somebody else to be your priest. Jesus is your priest, and he's put his spirit in you so that you can have conversations with him and know how to follow him. And and when it comes to that kind of stuff, you know, most of the time I find that a lot of that is very general. People that say stuff like that, it's very general, very vague, very hard to test and to pin down. The The less specific something is like that, the more you ought to think that's not of the Lord. Because you think about what we see in Scripture about God. God knows everything. And if he wants me to know something, 
he's usually pretty clear about what he wants me to know. You look throughout Scripture, God never is into confusing so that we cannot know him. He's always into unveiling so that we do know him. And so if there's something that has been said to you that is not specific, red flag. Something that's been said to you that sounds really good and there's very little bad in it, if something sounds really good, I would have some suspicions. Because every bit of the good news of God is always accompanied by something of a warning or what we would call bad news. Very little of what God says is just all good. It usually has some warning or some revelation of your sinfulness. Just be cautious. Just be cautious. Now let's say that somebody comes to you and says something that is very specific and lines up with what Scripture says. What are you supposed to do? Same thing Paul did. Paul had that happen to him. A guy named Agabus, a prophet, comes up to him, says, says I'm going to bind my hands and, and, and with your belt, and the person who owns this belt that I bound is going to be bound like this in Jerusalem. We turn over the Gentiles. All the people around Paul begin to freak out. You can't go to Jerusalem. There's no way you can go. I mean, what they see is the prophet has said what's going to happen, and this must be the Lord saying, you shouldn't go. And they start telling Paul, don't go. What does Paul say? I already know what God wants me to do. I'm going. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you think that means. God's already told me. So what do you do when somebody says stuff like that to you? You rely on the Spirit in your life to guide you because that's what the Bible says. That's the pattern that we know from Scripture. And what we know about the Spirit is because God wants us to know. So here's what you've got to know tonight before you leave. You've got to know the greatest work of God through the Spirit of Christ. The greatest work of God is simply repentance. The Spirit of God never does anything greater than the work of an individual repenting, coming to Christ, and faithfully becoming a member of the body of Christ. There is no greater work the Spirit carries out. That's evidence in Luke chapter 15 because Luke chapter 15 tells us that all heaven rejoices over the repentance of one sinner and uh, all so much more than 99 who are righteous. And then we know in John chapter 16 that that the Spirit of the Lord is convicting the world. Well, how does anyone repent? The conviction of the Spirit. And when the conviction of the Spirit brings repentance, all heaven rejoices. I think that makes it very clear that the most prominent, serious, amazing work of the Spirit is repentance. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this, that every other work of the Spirit is secondary to the work of the Spirit bringing about repentance. And every other work of the Spirit loses its substance, its value, when repentance is absent. It serves no ultimate purpose if it does not serve the purpose of repentance. And here's the great news about the greatest work of the Spirit. Every single one of us can be involved in experiencing the greatest work of the Spirit. You don't have to have some special gift. You don't have to have some special conference. You don't have to have some special experience. You don't have to have some special relationship. All you need to do is believe what God has said. And if you believe what God has said, the work of the Spirit is accomplished in your life. And there's no greater work than repentance. And so here's what I want you to do when you leave tonight. I want you to long for the work of the Spirit. I want you to pray for the work of the Spirit. 
I want you to ask the Lord to fill you with the Spirit so that you are empowered to do whatever He... Pray that He would pour out His gifts on the church. Pray that He would do everything the Spirit does in Scripture so that we might be a people that long for and experience consistent, ongoing, day after day repentance. And that we might see people come to Christ. That is just a little bit of what God wants us to know. And the truth is, if God wants us to know it, and we want to know it, we can. You can know the work of the Spirit. The question is, will you take the time to look where He's telling you? You can know the work of the Spirit in your life. And you can experience the greatest of His works. He wants you to. Let's be that kind of church.